Reverend Show. Uh, yes, it is Black History and Black Futures Month this month of February, and of course, we're not going to ignore that on this show. Your host here with you, Sherry DeNovo, as always. And by the way, thank you for your comments and thank you for getting in touch with me. I always respond and I always enjoy reading what you have to say. Today, we're featuring two of my favorite voices, uh, voices of Black liberation that are with us today. Uh, Cornell West, uh, this is an interview that he did with The Bottom Line, a show on Al Jazeera. And the title of the interview is A Choice Between Disaster and Catastrophe. It was taped in September of 2020 as he was looking ahead at the US election. Um, and certainly Cornell has always, always much to say. In the second part of the program, you're going to hear from my other favorite black voice, uh, Yvette Flunder, Bishop Yvette Flunder. This black uh, out lesbian uh, from California preaches, um, boy does she preach. And this particular sermon is entitled, The Skin We're In. So do stay tuned after Cornell to listen to Yvette. And keep those comments coming. And thank you. Here's Cornell. When a policeman shot Jacob Blake seven times in the back in front of his kids in Wisconsin last month, it was a painful reminder that real change is not coming fast enough to these United States. The shooting reignited passions across the country, especially after an armed white 17-year-old counter-protester came to Wisconsin from a nearby state and killed two other people protesting the shooting. So what's going on in the United States? Are we heading down a healthy road? Will race continue to be used cynically to get votes while the poor and disadvantaged continue to suffer endlessly. Joining us today is someone who has been thinking and preaching about these issues for decades. He is Professor Cornell West, one of the most prominent intellectuals alive. Professor West teaches at Harvard and Princeton universities. He's written 20 books and he still has time for his new weekly podcast and it's great, The Tight Rope. Thank you. Professor West, thank you so much for joining us. Recently, I was at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture and I saw the Emmett Till wing. Uh, I saw the wing that, that tells the story of the, the horrifying near genocide in Tulsa in 1921. And it began to occur to me that George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor could one day be a wing in a museum and we would still have everything the same today. So let me just ask you bluntly, is this an, an inflection point to you or do you think uh, that this is just history, you know, gonna continue on as it always has? But it's certainly a moment of uh, of change. The question is whether it's going to be change that tilts toward poor and working people or whether it will be a change that just reconsolidates elite rule moving in much more neo-fascist ways. But let me say this, Brother Steve, in tribute to you and the work you've done with the, uh, the legendary Chalmers H. Johnson, one of the great scholars of the American empire that much of American public discourse and most American intellectuals are disarmed at this moment because we have never taken seriously what it means to examine America as an empire 
and the ways in which America as an empire allows us to understand the relation between white supremacy, let's say like a George Floyd uh, being, being uh, uh, lynched, and Wall Street and corporate elite and the military industrial complex and the empirical tentacles of the United States around the world with the 800 military units, uh, uh, a military budget that is more than the next nine countries combined. So what happens is, is that even when you think of the museum, you know, the museum is just so uh, uh, merocentric with no connection of the ways in which predatory capitalism and imperial subordination abroad tied to geopolitics and tied to natural resources like oil in the Middle East, for example, are connected to white supremacist practices at home. And so as the American empire continues to decline, as it moves toward its, its collapse, as it were, we don't have the intellectual weaponry required to understand what is really going on. Now, William Appleton Williams and Bernard de Volto, he's back in the 30s and the 50s, and Chomsky today, and of course, W.B. Du Bois and Sylvia Winter and her brilliance and genius from the vantage point of Jamaica and Stanford University provide some intellectual uh, weaponry. But for the most part, the orientation of our public discussion, the orientation of the curriculum in our universities do not understand the United States' empire. That's why we can get Barack Obama always talking about the democratic deficit or talking about uh, uh, the founding of America can't say a mumbling word about indigenous peoples because there's a difference between understanding America as a settler colonial enterprise that moved from 13 states to 48 and then 50 as imperial expansion as opposed to America as a democratic experiment that left out black people and all we need to do is include black people and America becomes another, that, that grand city on the hill, that beacon of liberty. No, even if white supremacy were to disappear, America would still be an unjust society because the capitalist processes are such that the levels of poverty would be still there. That the asymmetric I, I, I relations of I think power at the workplace would still be there. The military units around the world would still be there. So we have to have a conception that Martin King taught us, and of course the great W.B. Du Bois is the scholar that does bring all of this together, but he taught us what justice is indivisible. I know you don't look at the Trump-Biden standoff uh, uh, and choice as being the right choice, but does this create the ingredients where finally this country could change? Or do you feel as if we're going to still be hollowing out people, still maintaining racism to kind of keep our, our global sprawl, if you will? Mm. Well, those tough questions. Well, one is that... Um... There's no doubt that with the neo-fascist gangster in the White House, we have to be part of an anti-fascist coalition because his being in charge of things can easily call into question the very possibility of any kind of democratic practices, rights and liberties, let alone social movements and so forth. The neoliberal wing of the ruling class, which is the establishment of the Democratic Party, is still going to be a... Uh, um, a disaster, but not the catastrophe that, that Trump is, because they're still so tied to Wall Street, they're still so tied to the Pentagon, they're still so tied to militarism around the world, and their conception of justice is to just simply make the class and imperial hierarchy more colorful. So they want more black people, they want more brown people, they more, want, want more women 
to be part of this class hierarchy, to be part of this imperial hierarchy. So it's still very much an imperial democracy in that sense. And that's where so many people think that, lo and behold, that's what it means to be progressive. But the much more uh, truth-telling and justice-seeking tradition that does have real uh, roots in the United States. The United States has always have, have had critics of the American empire. There's always been the, Ella Baker, who was invoked by Biden himself in the speech. Ella Baker was an exemplary anti-imperial and a strong critic of capitalism as she worked with Martin Luther King Jr. and as she worked with Stokely Carmichael and Diane Nash and the others. Where things are going now, I just don't know. I mean, we had a wonderful gathering uh, of the last few days with uh, Brother Dick Branagh and the Movement for People's Party, where you got this variety, cacophony of very, very courageous visionary voices with the critiques of the drones, the critiques of the bombs dropped, the critiques of the support of any regime that is dominating or occupying a people, a vicious Israeli occupation, for example. We, went, we must stay in contact with the rich humanity of our Palestinian brothers and sisters without in any way engaging in anti-Jewish uh, uh, hatred, anti-Jewish sensibility, but telling the truth about the vicious behavior of right-wing Jewish elites, gangsters like Nathan Yahoo and so forth. Same would be true in terms of critiques of domination in Russia, the critiques of domination in China, critiques of domination in Africa. We'd be able to tell the truth and the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak and that's why we we loved uh, Brother Johnson's work. I mean, he began with with Japan. I mean, going back to the, the Minji regime in 1868 and telling that story and the imperialism of Japan vis-a-vis -vis Korea. Well, how do we keep track of the humanity of those Franz Fanon called the wretched of the earth? It's an intellectual task. It is a moral task. And I speak, of course, as a Christian. It is a spiritual task. We have to have a fortitude in the face of all of the oppression, the lies, the crimes, and the naked, ugly repression that will more than likely come our way. And that fortitude can be fructifying, a wonderful word from William Wordsworth's prelude. What is it to fructify? To generate fruit, to generate intellectual fruit, ways of seeing, to generate moral fruit, ways of acting, to generate aesthetic fruit ways of feeling, to see differently, feel differently, act differently so that we keep track of empire, white supremacy, male supremacy, homophobic, transphobia, any forms of religion that would undermine rights and liberties, any forms of institutions that would lose sight of the precious humanity of each and every one of us. And I would even go as far as to say, of course, sentient sentient creatures because we're talking about ecological catastrophe and the extinction of so many species. And we're also talking about possible nuclear catastrophe, which could bring the end to the planet as we know it, given the two gangsters who actually are in, have control of those buttons, Putin on the one hand and Trump on the other. What does racial justice and racial inclusion look like and feel like? What When do you know you've got it? There's a lot of tumult out there, but I don't know if people have an idea of what it is to have that construct in front of them. And I'm wondering if you can share a vision of that for our viewers. Well, I mean, I always say justice is what love looks like in public. It's like tenderness is what love feels like in private. And when it comes to the 400 year attempt to 
call into question the humanity of black people in the Western hemisphere. It was very much a modern construction tied to slavery and tied to predatory capitalist expansions of cotton picking in the US South to the Lancashire, tied to the Lancashire mills in Britain, allowing Britain to be the first country to industrialize uh, before any other. That we're really talking about assuming the full-fledged humanity of black people so that all the vicious attacks on black intelligence, the attacks on black beauty, on noses and hips and lips and hair texture and skin pigmentation, the attacks on black moral character and trying to ensure that black people are always walking around scared, intimidated, so that psychologically you're already unfree, spiritually you're already unfree. That's what white supremacy does. So to talk about racial justice is not just to talk about equal access to goods and services and black people having some self-determination, but it has to do with issues of respect. It has to do with issues of, 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 of genuine acknowledgement of rich humanity. And we know if anybody who recognizes rich humanity, it's like a Dostoevsky novel. It's like a Chekhov short story. It's like a John Coltrane solo. We all have propensities that are good and bad, propensities toward evil, propensities toward the good. That's an acceptance of one's humanity. But when black people associated primarily with pathology, primarily with ignorance, primarily with lack of intelligence, all of the vicious tropes that, uh, that go hand in hand with racism, talk about racial justice, talk about black lives matter is an attempt to shatter all of those lies but there can never be racial justice without economic justice. There can never be racial justice without gender justice because to be black, of course, to be a black woman. It can't be it without uh, fighting homophobia because we've always been gay brothers and lesbian sisters in the black community. So the racial justice, again, is indivisible from all of these forms of justice. And you're right. I mean, for me, in my own uh, rather a parochial way, you know, I acknowledge that my own particular kind of Christianity is deeply rooted in how I was raised and what I read and so forth and so on. But I really do believe that Hebrew scripture was a kind of moral revolution in the species in terms of defining what it means to be human is to spread hesed, steadfast love and loving kindness to the orphan, the widow, the fatherless and motherless. It's not Alexander the Great. It's not Achilles. It's not all of the heroes from Genghis Khan to even Cyrus the Great, who I have great respect for as, a, as an emperor coming out of the world historical Persian tradition. But, but at the deeper level, ordinary people have a preciousness and a pricelessness. That's what sits at the center of the Imago Dei of Hebrew scripture. And then Jesus, Muhammad come right out of that prophetic Judaic tradition. And that's where I locate, that's where I situate myself, but also, you know, the Socratic legacy of Athens means a lot to me. The, the questioning, the constant questioning, the need for doubt, the need to wrestle with perplexity, not just curiosity, the perplexity of King Lear at the end of that classic by Shakespeare, the howl, the howl, he's howling. Why? Because he, he's overwhelmed. His world is shattered, but that's profoundly human. It's like Bob Marley's The Wailers, and not whining, the wailers, they're wailing. Why? Because of the suffering, the misery. How do you get a handle on it so that it, they neither have the last word, neither the misery nor the suffering, just like with, in Lear, with, we'll despair 
have the last word, that wonderful, wonderful uh, an issue that you see shot through Shakespeare's magnificent corpus. These are the kind of questions, it seems to me, that are very important these days because we're living in a moment of neo-fascism escalating and despair intensifying. And we have to be able to work through the despair like a brook of fire, like what Marx said about Forbach, the brook of fire through which we all must pass in order to become more fortitude, and to have more fortitude, to be more ready, to be more willing to think, feel, see, fight, laugh, organize, and live and die. Dr. West, that, that's a, a wonderful depiction um, of, of soul and purpose, and I appreciate it. I know that you have not endorsed Joe Biden, but I know that you have said that's one path to stopping uh, Donald Trump. But do you see anything yeah. in the wreckage of that time that gives you hope that Biden may actually be more willing to work on this class and economic justice uh, piece of the democracy puzzle uh, than, than you give him credit for? Well, I appreciate that, that question, Brother Steve. I just don't know. I mean, people change. No one would have thought that a white supremacist like Lyndon Bank Johnson would be the major presidential force for uh, black progress in the 1960s. People do change. Uh, the evidence for Biden doesn't look good. Evidence, uh, that Biden tends to be someone who just moves uh, uh, w w with the whispers of others. You know, the crime bill, the architect of the leading, most massive uh, mass incarceration regime in the modern world, targeting poor people, especially black, black youth. The same would be true with the war in Iraq, the killing of half a million precious brothers and sisters in Iraq with no apology. Uh, whatsoever. I mean, these are these are these are real crimes against humanity. It seems to me, and he's not the only politician. Politicians across the board were complicitous in the in Congress in Washington D.C. at that time. But he might change. I mean, I I do believe people can change. I just can't make make a, pro, a, a, a progressive project on his changing. That's why I I vote for him as an anti-fascist vote. I stand with Noam Chomsky. I stand with. Angela Davis, I stand with my brother Bob Ovakian and Carl Dix, I stand with a whole host of, of, of leftists and progressives who have anti-fascist orientation, but I respect the Paul Streets and the Chris Hedges and the Glenn Fords and the Margaret Kimberleys and the uh, uh, Jumu Barakas who are very critical of any vote for Biden. They're still my comrades, we just disagree strategically on that. But who knows, I mean, it could be that the escalating uh, people in the streets, the pressure from the streets does make Biden more and more LBJ-like at this time. It's hard to say. Will Sister Kamala Harris also be pushed? It's hard to say. Her record is not in any way encouraging in this regard. She seems to be very much like Biden. She is a, a garden variety politician. She will do what is necessary in order to win the next election and in order to win the applause of the centrists and the moderates and especially the donors and the benefactors who provide the money. I, I do think the Democratic Party is just so colonized by Wall Street uh, and big money and big donors and the big lobbyists from APAC, for example. You got a number of folk in the Democratic Party who know that the treatment of our brothers and sisters in, 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 on the West Bank and in Gaza is crimes against humanity, but they don't have the courage. They don't have the backbone to speak out against it. They'll be viewed as anti-Semitic. They'll be viewed as anti-Jewish. And it's just not the case. So that, but that's lobby. That that's 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 lobby money. Thank God we've got all these young 
Jewish brothers and sisters who are now joining hands with many of the Palestinians and many of us in terms of calling for justice. But we want to make sure, of course, that all of us are accountable. Palestinians, Jews across the board in terms of truth, in terms of justice, no revenge, no hatred. We have to bring critique to bear no matter what, but we're focusing on the suffering and the misery. Will Biden be open to that kind of move? I doubt it, but you never know. I, I don't believe in dictating people's behavior though, brother. No, we human beings, we are mysterious, unpredictable disasters and possible wonders at the same time. Uh, as people watch the violence in Portland, as they worry about what's going on in cities, how do we get it right, Dr. West? Mm, well, I tell you, that's another wonderful question, though. But you know the great poet T.S. Eliot, who, given his artistic genius, had his own reactionary politics, too much anti-Jewish element in him, but his genius is undeniable. He wrote 1936, Burnt Norton. He says, we moderns are distracted from distractions by distractions. And so much of American culture, which is a commodified culture, it's full of just weapons of mass distraction. And so much of the substantive issues of Pentagon power, Pentagon crimes, Wall Street power, Wall Street crimes, police power, police crimes, wealth inequality, these are the substantive issues, you see. Those are the ones fundamentally that can change people's lives at the deepest level. We in America tend to opt for the distraction. So we end up with the politics of representation, the politics of spectacle. So you get fights over the monuments, you get fights over what you're gonna write in your street, Black Lives Matter and so forth. I agree with so much of those. I would like to see new kinds of symbols, symbols in some sense, do matter, but symbols also become distractions from the more fundamental issues. And when those fundamental issues are issues that require people to come together in multiracial solidarity, in multisexual and multinational solidarity, those are the ones who th that matter, you see. And so I, I, I hate to see so much energy spent, let's say in a small town like that, so much energy spent over this intense debate and they come up with resources to put Black Lives Matter right there in the square. And then you look around in the neighborhoods and black people are still living lives of poverty and misery and ruin and disaster. You still got a mass incarceration system working. You still got decrepit school systems. You still got indecent housing. You don't have access to Medicare, which is the most, I mean, can you imagine any civilized society not allowing its citizens to have access to medical care but no we got big pharmaceutical companies and their greed and their interest you got big private insurance companies and their greed and their interest that don't even allow it 89 percent of american citizens want medicare for all that brother bernie was talking about we, democratic party can't deliver republican party is not thinking about delivering why because the oligarchs the plutocrats dictate the destiny of the nation not the people so those are much more substantive to me than writing Black Lives Matter in Washington, D.C., or Black Lives Matter in Detroit, and so forth and so on. So people walk around with this sense of fulfillment. Oh, we've got this symbolic victory. And then they still catch in hell. I mean, we, we saw that with the U.S. president, with Brother Barack Obama, Black president, Black attorney general, Black homeland security, Black mayors, and they still can't stop the police from killing young Black brothers and sisters. Brianna's still gone. Floyd's still yeah. gone. Brother Gardner's still gone. 
substantive issues are not being addressed and the, and the substantive issues have to do with a predatory capitalist system. They have to do with a militarism abroad that takes 53 cents of every discretionary dollar spent in Washington right. to go to military and you only have the 47 cent left. And then even there, you've got austerity programs and the neoliberals that say, we don't have any money, but oh, when it's time to go to war in Afghanistan, when it's time to overthrow the, uh, 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 the, the, the ruler in Libya, gangster that he was, but still has a right to rule without us overthrowing him. And so when you dropping the drones on innocent people in Yemen and Somalia, and, and, and Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so, oh, we got big money for that when it's time to bail out Wall Street. Federal Reserve doesn't bail out, not just Main Street, they could have bailed out community banks. They could have bailed out a whole host of other banks. Why do you remain tied to the Wall, Wall Street banks? That's Geithner, that's Summers, that's Sterling. That's the ones you were talking about, you see. Right. That, that's Goolsby. That's their world, that little narrow, truncated, Wall Street-centered world. If, the, if Wall Street is doing well, if the stock market is doing well, then America's doing well. What a lie. What does it mean to have a, an empire dictated, addicted to lies, hiding right, crimes? Right. That's chickens that come home to roost when you tell so many lies and you engage in so many crimes and you think that somehow you are still innocent. James Baldwin used to say you can't be the author of authorizers of this devastation and still view yourself as innocent. That innocence itself is the crime even before you commit the crime. And that's right. the problem of the United States. We've been innocent for so long with indigenous peoples, innocent with enslavement of Africans, innocent with subordination, exploitation of white workers, innocent in terms of the women. And so, but we make our breakthroughs. Yes, we do because people struggle, people sacrifice. And yet the breakthroughs have to be on substantive issues. It can't just be on the symbolic ones or the symbolic ones right. become the distractions that the great T.S. Eliot was writing about in his poem. Why should the black community believe that if it fights to get Joe Biden in, that it, that it will be dealt with well, that it will be, I mean, why should we believe that they should believe in this system and and if Donald Trump loses and won't leave that White House, that we we uh, uh, that there's an expectation that they're somehow going to be part of making things so-called right politically. I mean, I'm just I mean, I sound a bit cynical, but I mean, I'm just interested in, no, in, in the stakes of this moment and what would happen Absolutely. if Donald Trump doesn't leave. Absolutely. As you know, I mean, your vote through mail might not ever get there. I mean, so the, you're really talking about votes across the board. But no, the deeper question that you're raising is what makes any black person believe that after 400 years of a white supremacist civilization and over 200 and some years of a white supremacist USA, that uh, the American people, uh, for the most part, even have the capacity, especially the elites have the capacity to treat the masses of black people with dignity and, and decency. This is Marcus Garvey's great question. And uh, it's a question that still unsettles so many of us because the black masses are still living lives so often of, of disaster and, and ruin. And the, the answer to that question, I think, is the answer that Henry Howland Garnett gave in the 1830s when he said, black people must never confuse their situation with that of the Israelites in the Old Testament. For black people, Pharaoh is on both sides of the bloody Red Seas. And sometimes that pharaoh comes in a lot of different colors at the local, regional, and the national and international level. 
And what does that mean then? Well, then you got to be blues-like. The blues is tragic comic. Albert Murray, Ralph Ellison, Tony Morrison, Curtis Mayfield, Louis Armstrong, the greatest of them all in some ways, John Coltrane. So the blues means we are a people on intimate terms with catastrophe. Nobody loves me but my mama, and she might be jiving too. That's the king of the blues. That's B.B. King. Strange Fruit, a Billy Holiday. What is Strange Fruit? American terrorism, lynching. How are you going to keep on going? Well, you've got to make sure you wrestle with a despair, but a despair that never paralyzes your will. That's tragic comic. It means you continue to fight over against the odds. You continue to laugh. You continue to love. You continue to organize. You continue to try to reconstruct and revolutionize your society and your community. You continue to be tender and caring and kind to your kids and other people's kids. That's what it is to be human at its deepest level. And that's, the, that's that black difference to the Hebrew scripture. The spreading of that hesed is also in the black context profoundly tragic comic, something that Chekhov understood. But of course, Isaac Bashevis Singer understands it from his own Jewish Yiddish point of view. And tragic comic means there's always going to be an alternative interpretation in which the claim is you will never ever win mm. that you're always against the grain it's always david versus goliath without any possibility of some easy victory or some easily easy slingshot with a rock in it but you bear witness any way because that's the kind of human being you choose to be before the worms get your grave that's my tradition. You see, that is the tragic comic tradition. And as a Christian, it's cruciform. Anybody who loves right. deeply and loves poor people deeply, you're headed to the cross. That's the way the world is. Well, the Roman Empire did that then, and the American Empire does that now. The Russian Empire does that now. The Chinese Empire does that now. The re reactionary elites in Brazil and Hungary and Turkey and all of the authoritarian rulers do that now. And e many of the neoliberal rulers in their own distinctive ways do that now. But you fight anyway with a smile and with style. Don't let anybody yeah. take your style and your swing. What did Duke Ellington used to say? It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And there ought to be a stain <laughs> in your swing so when you're swinging people ought to hear and feel your blows and they're not blows of revenge they're blows of justice they're not blows of hatred they're blows of love of truth of goodness of beauty and for me as a christian the love of god leads me to swing spiritual fists political fists wow like muhammad ali wow. just keep swinging <laughs> no matter what i have to say you're a total realist you're like a no bs realist but there's a hopefulness in that, and I just want to say thank you. Well, that's right. Hope and no optimism. That's exactly right, my brother. Prisoner of hope. Prisoner of hope. Well, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for joining The Bottom Line. Thank you. Salute you, my brother. So if you've just tuned in, too bad, so sad. You're going to have to listen on iTunes and SoundCloud to hear that wonderful interview with Cornell West uh, from The Bottom Line, originally taped for Al Jazeera. Uh, the choices between disaster and catastrophe, Cornell speaking about what was then the upcoming U.S. election. And now we're going to hear from Yvette Flunder, Bishop Yvette Flunder from California, speaking, sermonizing, preaching. And the title of the sermon is 
the skin we're in. Listen up. God bless you. I feel so blessed and privileged to share with my family here in Los Angeles. And I might say that I am honored and I'm also, as my grandmother used to say, plum tickled to be able to spend this time with our family here. The skin we're in, unity, the skin we are in. This closing prayer of Jesus, I ask that they may all be one. It's taken from a passage of scripture that is foundational to the United Church of Christ. And so many years ago when the streams that came together to form the UCC looked for a theme scripture, this was the passage and is the passage that they may all be one so that the world will know, so that the whole world will know that the world is loved by God. And it begs the question, why is our unity such a powerful statement to the world? And why is our unity such a testament about the love of the divine for all creation? What's the big deal about unity? We are in this house today from different places and experiences, from different faith paths, races, cultures. And as human beings, we have assumptions about each other. You know how those people are that are from San Francisco? <laughs> or Omaha? Or New York City? And at times we objectify and are objectified by each other's opinions. Working for and finding unity, my brothers and sisters and siblings today, is not the work for wimps. It is a challenge to genuinely and authentically find our way to each other. I say it this way, I come from folks on both sides of my family who were born in slavery or were born on the Cherokee Reservation in Oklahoma. And I've said many times to my folks who don't know the way of African Americans from the South, it's like chitlins. Now, if you've never had chitlins, you don't understand chitlins. There may be some people for whom the conversation about chitlins is completely foreign. Chitlins are the entrails of pigs, and my folks were raised on food that was thrown away. They didn't get what was called high on the hog. They had to eat low on the hog. Chitlins was about as low as you can go on the hog. I need to tell you that. But the thing that I want to share with you is that you don't come into chitlins late in life. You have to be raised on chitlins to have a palate for chitlins. <laughs> Same is true about haggis. Anybody understand what I'm saying? Or blood sausage. We could talk a little bit about kimchi. Come on, help me here. 
My first time I experienced kimchi, I smelled it long before I saw it. <laughs> it's important for me to say that because there was something that your grandmother cooked that was a part of your family that is perhaps not at the fast food stores and markets and not at the food trucks, but you grew up on it. And it is particularly peculiar to your experience. Working to find unity is somehow important in and around our ability to find a connection that does not make us lose the things that are unique about us, but simultaneously respects that each of us has had a very different journey. Essentially, unity is not sameness. What I am clear about is that we will not agree on all things. But unity is what holds us together while we struggle through our growth processes. During this season, conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement. The movement is often responded to with, well, all lives matter. But unity, in some ways, requires us to hear the concern of a community without needing to homogenize it with ours. This unity becomes more visible when it's demonstrated in our support for each other. One of the reasons that peaceful people and peace-filled people can often have difficulty in making change it's because we have so many different important issues that are unique to us. Essentially, the Earth people are not connected to the right to life people who are not connected with the prison industrial complex people who are not connected to the Black Lives Matter people because we cannot find our common denominator. There's something in us that says that if you don't make special the thing that is special to me, then I'm having some real difficulty getting under your load with you and allowing you to lead in the things that are most particularly important to the communities that you serve. We are hard pressed to speak to and to model the need for unity and peace in the world if we're not working together as peace people for unity among ourselves. Now, I know that you don't do chitlins. Most of you. Let me look around. <laughs> Not a whole lot of chitlin eaters in this room. But that does not mean that we cannot find other ways to connect to one another. And if nothing else, the commonness, the connectedness of our humanity, hallelujah, connects us in a very real substantive and substantial way. We are hard-pressed to speak to and model the need for unity. We have silos in religion. I'm amazed at the degree to which we have siloed in religion in this country. And let me say it to you this way. We will conscience, we will endure an annual interfaith service where all the faiths come together. You, you feel me, right? 
and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Episcopal folks and the Catholic folks and all the folks come together, we can manage it for about an hour and a half. <laughs> then we have to go back <laughs> where we are religiously comfortable. Amen, Bishop Flunder, that is absolutely correct. Because we have silos. And I compare those silos very much to Mother Bertha Robinson's work in the kitchen when I was a kid coming along in the church. We had a mother at our church. Her name was Mother Bertha Robinson. Mother Bertha was over the youth department, and she had one of those wood-paneled station wagons. And we would pile up in Mother Bertha's station wagon, and we'd get mustard and relish and stuff all over the back seat. She didn't care. That was Mother Bertha. She was over the youth department. Mother Bertha, every fifth Sunday in our church, was in charge of the kitchen. And Mother Bertha, bless her heart, she loved children, but she just could not cook. Now, imagine someone in charge of the kitchen who could not cook. When she fried chicken, it would be sort of red at the bone and burnt on the outside. That kind of, she just couldn't, her, her cake was kind of salty and grainy. And so she would raise more money than anyone else because people would give a donation. They'd just say, I'll give a donation. <laughs> I don't need a dinner. I'll just give a donation. Mother Bertha made a bad cake like that 25 years of my life. And it begs the question, what is a 25-year-old bad cake? It's a bad cake. But you can get used to a bad cake if you eat it for 25 years. That's kind of how we are in religion. You allow me to say that? that? There are things that we do that silo us from one another that we really don't know why we do it. It's just that that's the way that it's always been done. And when we are connected to something that is the way that it's always been done, it adds a certain holiness to it. Hmm. That's kind of how it was with Mother Bertha's cooking. We thought her delightful, but the truth is she couldn't cook. I think that breaking down the silos is connected to our regarding one another's different faith paths with respect, but simultaneously reaching deeply enough to touch the things that matter, because there are things that matter. There are also things that are culture. Sisters and brothers, siblings, we have work to do. So in order for authentic unity to exist, we must find some common purpose some common vision, some common destiny that holds us together. This election cycle that we are in has revealed the underbelly of religion-supported hatred and bigotry that we really thought was close to extinction. We didn't know that it was still seething underneath the surface, the surface rather, religion that supports the hatred of LGBT people. And religion that supports unfettered and unbridled and in so many ways bruised patriarchy. The religion that supports the idea that God would have us arm ourselves to the teeth and build bunkers in our backyard and wait for an apocalyptic event that will set 
the world right. And when we dig out of our bunkers, we'll all look alike. We'll be the same color, have the same belief systems, sing from the same hymn books, and quote from the King James Bible. It is amazing to me because I, like many of the other naive folks, thought we were beyond so much of this. But the world will believe, sisters and brothers, in the ideals that we express by the example of unity that we model. I believe that you and I can be in unity with one another. No matter what our life experiences or religious belief systems have done to separate us, I believe that the call of God is for us to actively and aggressively find our way to each other. Beyond a doubt, strife and wrangling and division are a stumbling block to the world about our message of love. By this shall all men and women know that we are Christ's disciples, that we have love one to another. Not style, not performance art, not the idea and the culture of our faith paths, but that we have love one to another. So let me leave you with this parabolic idea. Unity is like skin. Skin, the largest organ of our body. It holds all of the functions and organs of our body together while they do their individual tasks. Skin, it is our covering, it is our package, it keeps our individual components with their independent functions moving together as the whole body moves. Circulatory system can be moving up and down, round and round, front to back, the liver can be cleansing the blood, the kidneys can be throwing off waste, the nose can be smelling, and the fingers can be touching. And then, of course, there are things like the appendix and the tonsils. We don't know exactly what their purpose is, but they're in the body. <laughs> and the whole body, with its clearly distinguished purpose and its not-so-distinguished purpose, is moving together toward a desired destination. The skin, made up of three clear layers, the top called the epidermis. The epidermis is translucent, by the way, and colorless. It allows light to pass through it, like a frosted glass does. The epidermis does not contain any blood vessels, but it gets its oxygen and its nutrients from the deeper layers of skin. It's the first thing you see. And the first thing you see, sisters and brothers, when you see it, it is colorless. The second layer lies deeper, and it's called the dermis. It's where the blood vessels and the nerves and the hair roots and the sweat glands live. Below the dermis is a layer that we don't like to talk about much. It's called the subcutaneous fat. Now, that subcutaneous fat is represented in some of us a bit more than it is in others, but we all have it. The subcutaneous fat 
lies on the muscles and the bones to which the whole skin structure is attached by connective tissue. And the attachment is quite loose. That's why your skin can move fairly freely. Skin, multi-layered, multi-dimensional, yet it is the skin we are in. And if our skin were not in place, our body would bleed out and all of our stuff would fall out on the ground and our bodies would fail. Skin is also the first line of defense. It is your skin that lets you know when the atmosphere is too hot or too cold. It is your skin that is there to both warm you when it's cold and to cool you when it's hot. One of its greatest functions is to register pain and send a signal to your brain. It's kind of like this. Somebody steps on your foot. The skin on your toe says, uh-oh, something very serious has happened. Sends a signal to your brain helps you to understand that your foot has been injured, and then your brain decides what to do with the person who stepped on your foot. <laughs> the skin reacts to the emotions of fear and joy and exhilaration, and it does not cater to any particular part of the body. The skin on your face and the skin on your feet the skin on your hands, the skin on your thighs, the skin on the parts of the body that we can talk about in church, and the skin on the parts of the body that we refuse to talk about in church, all it knows is that it is skin, and it is not hierarchical in any way. Skin shifts, and it changes. Did you know that your skin replaces itself every seven years? And the skin that comes back or that comes to life seven years later has a bit more wrinkle? <laughs> Anybody hear me? It is faithful. It self-perpetuates. I'm a mother. I'm a birth mother. And I can say to you that skin stretches to accommodate new life. It accommodates a new baby, and it almost goes back to where it was before, after the babies are born. Skin hangs in there, even when it's doing more hanging than anything else. Because skin is not there just for pretty. The most of your skin is not what's on your face and your beautiful hands and perhaps your feet that show. Skin is not there just for pretty. Skin is there for purpose. And so take this with you today. Unity is like skin. Our diversity is held together by the love of God and our unity of purpose. We are interdependent and we are in covenant with one another. I'm on my way to Nairobi and spend some time in Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, where our brothers and sisters who are LGBT and their families and the clergy and organizations that affirm them are in danger for their lives. 
on a regular basis. It's important for me to say that what really alarms me is the absence of support from people of faith in the United States for what is happening on the continent of Africa. And even more disturbing to me is the absence of the presence of what I've come to call the pop culture preachers in my community who say a lot about a lot of things, but will not understand that we are the same skin as our sisters and brothers whose lives are in danger because of who they are and who they love. You see, we are interdependent and we are in covenant. Without hard-won unity, without hard-won unity, we would spin off in so many directions that a unified, powerful voice that is needed for change for those people, but not just those people, for the people that are in this room and for the people who feel like they cannot be in this room. A unified, powerful voice will be impossible if we don't unify. The desire for unity makes us think through how we treat one another. You see, I can objectify you all day long. I can say to my driver, don't drive me through this neighborhood because this is a dangerous neighborhood. Or I can say, you know how white men are. They're all like that. Or I can say, well, you know how Asian people are. Don't ever get in business with an Asian person. It is amazing to me how people objectify the other. And it's easy to objectify when you don't get up close. Amen, Bishop Flynn. Because when we get close to one another, close enough that we touch and hug and feel each other's heartbeat, it's very hard to objectify me when you're walking with me in the work of justice. Hallelujah. Unity. The desire for unity makes us think through how we treat one another. Unity makes us pay attention to where the greatest need in the body is when someone has stepped on the proverbial toe of the body. Unity makes us send help where the toe has been stepped on. Because unity is first colorless, it is genderless, but it also respects and acknowledges and celebrates our differences. Eat all the kimchi you want to and all the blood sausage, but you have to understand my chitlins. You understand what I mean. Unity does not care if we are black or white or yellow or brown or straight or gay or not falling into any of those categories comfortably. Unity doesn't care whether we're from the rural or we're from the city. Essentially, everyone matters. Unity keeps us connected with each other, but not with so much rigidity and form and process that it limits our creativity. Unity lets us move freely, but move together. Unity has room for new babies for new members of the family, which I can tell you will be very different. I thought my daughter was different, but then my grandson came along. And I'm telling you now that if you don't have any Ninja Turtles, you don't have a Superman and a Batman, 
He has absolutely no time for you at all. He's very different from how she was, and she's very different from me, but unity suggests that we find room to accommodate those that are coming, and those that are coming should not have to be forced to be like those who are here. Unity has room for new members. It respects the members that are new, while it simultaneously respects the members that have been wisened by experience. And I'll close with this quote from someone who has blessed me throughout my life and time and studies in seminary. Henry Nouwen said this, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. What we want to see, my beloved, in the world is what we must model for the world. And this is a critical time for us to do it. Someone said to me, well, I'll just pray and vote. And I said, good, pray and vote. But I'm also encouraging folks to encourage your circle to pray and vote. And let me go a step further, dangerous step further, and say that all of the retired hippies, it's time to go in the attic and get your signs and your Birkenstocks and come downstairs and make some noise about what you believe. Sometimes peaceful people are just too peaceful. May our church community both know the freedom and cohesiveness of unity and simultaneously be empowered to do the work that is necessary to bring justice to the world. Unity is the skin we are all in together. God bless you is my prayer. That's it for our show today. Do listen in on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever. Uh, do keep those comments coming. It's a pleasure to be with you on this Black History, Black Futures Month. Take care. Till next time on The Radical Reverend Show. Mm -hmm.